Hello, and welcome to another issue of Anesthesia Compass podcast. This is Mike Dobson. This week, I'm continuing my conversation with Charles Clayton, Chief Executive Officer of Primary Trauma Care. Last time, Charles told us about the need to grow trauma services in the face of an epidemic that's killing 5 million people a year in the developing world. This week, he tells us about how the courses work and how you might like to get involved. Welcome back again, Charles. Um, Last time we spoke, uh, we were talking about primary trauma care and why low and middle income countries need special treatment because you know, in, we have in the rich countries, we have most of the cars, we have most of the roads. So obviously we, we must have most of the trauma, don't we? So, you know, if, if you've only got uh, a, a bad road and the traffic only goes slowly or, or maybe somewhere like Bangkok, it never moves at all. Well, <laughs> there can't be, much of a, can't be much of a problem with that, can there? Why, why should we be paying attention to, to uh, these countries in relation to trauma? <laughs> well, um, it's a very big subject. Um, and it, it affects every part of the world, of course. Uh, uh, none of us is, is free of it. Trauma happens everywhere. Um, and in the high-income countries, the richer countries, um, the, the issue is there's a much better provision of high-tech services, high-expertise services. And uh, we would love it if... We would all love it if all that excellent service could be rolled out worldwide overnight or very quickly. That would be fantastic. That's what everybody has a right to. And it's a matter of human rights to see every person on earth getting access to expert care, not just in the field of trauma, but um, you know, I'm part, we're part of a, another large group, the, the Global Alliance. It's the Global Alliance for access to safe surgery, obstetrics, trauma, and anesthesia care. So we could expand that question to quite a big field, um, which, is, which is basically global health care. The question is, um, why is it different in the lower middle income countries? Well, you've hinted at it already in that um, the technology and the, the, the equipment is much more accessible and much more available in the high income countries. Um, I was talking with somebody in Geneva a couple of years ago, and I asked, what would it cost to roll out you know, the systems we have in Switzerland and the UK and every similar country? How, what would it cost to roll that out and get it established globally in every, every part of the earth? And his answer was, to do, a, to do an even moderately adequate job, we, we would need, I think he said something like 13 trillion dollars per year for at least a decade and of course it's not going to happen Uh, and if you think about even a smaller portion of money than that uh, it's going to be all of this century before we see really high quality uh, high tech care becoming available uh, anything like that globally Um, i wish it was quicker but the fact is in the meantime what what can be done and in the view of uh, the colleagues I work with, we don't fold our arms and say, well, we can't, we just have to wait. We say, well, what, what else can we do? Um, the, you've mentioned the traffic, and that is one of the major causes of, of injury. 
uh, is on the roads, and by the way, especially on two wheels. That's a serious aspect of that. But with uh, in the countries that have 1% of the world's vehicles suffer from 13% of the world's deaths on the roads. And that gives you, gives you an idea that something is wrong there. So let me talk about the trauma envelope. We sometimes talk about the field of trauma this way. If you imagine uh, it starting with prevention and it ends with rehabilitation. So how can we prevent the problem? And then how can we get things back on the, ro on the road? That's the wrong phrase. We're back working again. And um, the, uh, the envelope starts with preparation. So, for example, in, in the case of traffic, road injuries, um, better roads, better vehicles, better standards of maintenance, better driver education, uh, better laws, better policing, um, better information, better public education, uh, limits on numbers of passengers on buses, for example, speed limits. Uh, you could go on and on about what could be done to make the roads safer. And uh, to the credit of many countries, they are doing that. I was in Nairobi uh, before the pandemic. I was there a few months before that. And I noticed that compared to my visits there over the years, the roads out of Nairobi and going into the rural areas um, were so much better, so much more safe. There, were, there weren't pedestrians wandering across the road. There were, there were proper junctions. They even had you know, better traffic control at junctions. Um, it's not perfect, but that's a good example of good preventative road work. So prevention is one, one area. And by the way, injury isn't caused just on roads. It is caused a lot by poverty, bad infrastructure, uh, things that fall over or collapse, buildings, uh, not enough safety in, on heights, um, not enough safety around fire, and people get injured through all sorts of poor infrastructure problems. So it's a very similar, uh, for them, very similar too. It, prevention can be done. So regulations, but also education, good teaching across the board in communities at grassroots level in schools um, to teach prevention. So after prevention, what happens if someone's injured? Let's go back to the idea of a road injury. Uh, someone is knocked off the bicycle or as a pedestrian knocked over, they're injured initially somebody um, applies first aid. Their life is instantly saved if someone can do that, if someone can keep them breathing, keep them safe, and call for help. So that's for, that you might say it's the second stage, first aid. But then what? Because quite often a severely injured patient needs more than just to be kept warm. Um, uh, they have to be helped with their injuries. And so they call for help. And that's, that's where the great big lack in funding occurs. So uh, when, when they call for help from the doctors or the hospital or whatever the system is, in many parts of the world, they just don't have ambulances. They expect them to get to the hospital through some other means. It could be in a taxi. And, and then that leads to all sorts of bad um, means, such as on the back of a, of a donkey or back of a cart or even on a bicycle. And people are very inventive to find ways, but that adds more injuries. But in that phase, uh, the time is very critical. You, you only have a few minutes or an hour or two in, in some in some injury cases, and you might you've got to get the person into safe care. 
and that's a big gap. Um, a lot happens there where people die or do make it, but they're permanently disabled. Um, but that, that area of primary trauma and the care there, the primary trauma care that's missing, uh, that's the third stage, which um, is pre-hospital and includes just inside the hospital, if there is a hospital. So once they get into hospital, they have to be admitted and immediately helped. The next stage after that, you might call advanced trauma care, where they can get surgery of some sort or treatment of some sort, possibly a specialist. Quite often involves orthopedic care, uh, depending what the injury is. But that is more expensive uh, and is rare, or harder to find in many parts of the world, especially in rural areas and also in uh, dense um, high housing areas in the outskirts of major cities. Uh, so once they get through that, if someone is, uh, survives and does well and is treated well and uh, the, the surgery intervention works, it isn't over. The, the final stage is rehabilitation, helped back into society to regain work again, regain life again, learn how to live again. So that, that is a continuum uh, of trauma. Uh, here in the richer countries, uh, that's a given. We expect it. We have social care services. We have all kinds of means to go from prevention right through to rehabilitation with, with the best uh, possible help. But when it's in a remote, poor, rural area, for example, um, every one of those stages is a real challenge. And primary trauma care is only one part of that process. So what we try to do is promote good awareness of the other things. And I think there is a knock-on effect in any case, because when people begin to be trained and begin to get uh, a vision for the health of, of the, the community, um, everybody begins to wake up to the general needs, such as better roads, such as better buildings. So um, what's happening uh, is, you know, in public health globally, is more systemic. It, it's, what is needed is more systemic, but when you intervene in one area, particularly if it's a needier area, uh, then it tends to uh, promote the other aspects as well. The, the metaphor we sometimes use is you know, when the tide rises, it floats all the boats. Uh, well, to float all the boats, it happens when the whole community becomes aware of what's possible. And uh, By the way, in the primary trauma care work, which we deliberately make it um, very low-tech and very accessible, very replicable, uh, very low low tech in the teaching methods, and um, so that it can be retaught and repeated and done over and over again, uh, if necessary, under the trees, in a schoolroom, uh, e even out in the open. But it can be repeated, and it's that replicability which ten helps it to get right to where those needy areas are, and with it comes this attitude of public health, raising uh, all the standards everywhere. Thanks, Paul. Um, I think it's worth reiterating some, something you said before, that PTC is a very practical course. Um, and even on the, the basic uh, provider PTC courses, uh, more than half the time is spent in practical sessions, in small group sessions. This is very often a new form of teaching for the people who are undergoing it. Um, and then on the instructor course, again, uh, a lot of that time is spent putting into practice practicing to be instructors. And of course, the last two days, those new instructors, it's 100% practical. That's all they're doing. 
uh, is putting things into practice and, and they, they learn a tremendous amount from that. Um, you said also earlier that, that uh, PTC was globally popular, which was your phrase. And I think it's been uh, introduced into more than 80 countries now. Could you maybe give us a couple of examples of, of countries where PTC has been introduced and, and what the effects have been? Maybe some, something from Africa and something from Asia? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, but it may surprise you to know that um, uh, I and others in the, the global north uh, seldom get there. We're not, always, we're not flying around the globe all the time at all. Uh, uh, the training happens often to neighboring countries. Uh, that's the vast majority of the expansion program happens from country to neighboring country. The most, uh, even during this pandemic, uh, the, the global, the world seemed to get locked down, didn't it? And still is to some extent. And in the lockdown, um, almost all the volunteers we're aware of were immediately redeployed into the emergency or were backfilling for somebody who is. And so our courses have slowed down in the last period of time during the pandemic. Although in the last few weeks, we've had a lot of calls from people who are reinventing it for, the, for their facilities they have and the way they can make it work in their own environment. But the, in the, in the first, first few months of this year, there were, uh, we opened up a new country, that's Somaliland, uh, and also there were five new courses in five new places in the country of Nepal, Nepal in Asia, um, and also in Senegal in West Africa. Uh, let me just mention Somaliland. Um, this is a, was a classic way that the, the, the whole thing begins to spread. Um, the requests came from local doctors. We've only gone where we've been invited. And the local doctors have actually been asking for it for quite a long time, several years. We had to wait until they were, they were well organized and ready to, for the training. And then we organized um, an international team. And we always do this to internationalize it to make sure there's cross-fertilization, spread of experience. In some cases, a question of language and culture. Uh, that make it easier to, to have a good program. So this particular uh, uh, group that was put together uh, consisted of two UK-based instructors, two Kenya instructors, both of them surgeons, and uh, a third uh, from King's College London that we collaborated with for this. It's uh, so a third person there with a lot of international experience. And so it was a team of... Um, five very experienced, internationally experienced people. The two Kenyans particularly were very well aware of the local needs, how it had to be run and so on. So by the time the team got in, they, they were in touch with the local team by email and phone calls and Zoom, all sorts of methods. And by the time of January came, the team arrived in the capital city, Hargeisa, and they first of all, met with the local team, prepared them, talked about, talked through the curriculum, got them to do a lot of the setup. In fact, pretty much all of it. They set up the program, they invited the candidates, uh, the word began, began to spread, so they had interest from all sorts of people, uh, and they held the first course, the first five days, that two-one-two pattern of two days of training for 20 people, one day for the instructors, training and then finally two more days for 20 more people where the new instructors do that teaching coached by the first team 
And that, that took place in Hargeisa, located at the Hargeisa Group Hospital, uh, uh, which is the main teaching hospital in that city. And they had uh, a quiet place to teach. They had a good facility to, to use. It was a simple room, but completely, completely large enough, large enough for them to do the teaching and then to break into breakout groups. The 20 trainees often go into groups of five, four groups of five for various purposes of the teaching. When that course was finished and they'd done all that, um, they moved lock, stock and barrel to another part of the country, uh, went to a regional hospital in the city of Borama. It's about two hours drive from Hargeisa. Somaliland is not a very large country. Uh, uh, and so they were able to do it in a couple of hours drive and, and get set up there and then did the whole thing again. Um, but, you know, you might, this might help you to imagine it, uh, because uh, the only room available had seating on long benches. It wasn't a set of chairs. <laughs> they had a set of long benches. Uh, it was a bit challenging to move them around and turn them into breakout groups and to work on skill stations and things like that. But they did. They, they made it work. And uh, local... Uh, help people helped with food and drink so that they were kept alive and able to rest and they were able to find even able to find a projector uh, and a laptop computer and a printer so they could produce the materials and show uh, slides on screen um, and by all accounts it was a very successful uh, two sets of two trainings uh, and since then we've heard they have repeated the training again so they're up and running. Uh, it's, it's, it's got its wings. The whole program is, is flying there. Um, I, now you mentioned other places. Uh, I've not, uh, I'll give you my personal experience, but uh, let me not talk about Asia because somebody else could speak better about that. I'll go, now, I'll go down to Kenya again, down uh, south from Somaliland into East Africa. And uh, let me just be a bit brief on this one and tell you that uh, the team, the team of trainers came from various parts of Kenya. Uh, they organized training in a small town about three or four hours drive north of Nairobi. Uh, and in that town, we stayed in. I joined them and I was the only foreigner. Uh, we stayed in very simple accommodation. Uh, and the, when the um, trainees came in, we met in a room that was waiting to be rehabilitated by the local health service. Uh, so it was just basically shattered windows, a lot of broken glass all over the floor, very little facility inside, no toilets. We had to find toilets, you know, a five minute walk away in the village. Uh, and we were, able, we were able to set the thing up, the group set it up and held their, their five days of training in that room. Uh, using the facilities that were only available locally. That's one of our principles, in fact, is use only what's available locally. So rather than saying, look, this isn't good enough, we need better equipment and better facilities, they said, we'll make it work with this. And when, it, when it comes to the, the teaching itself, the application of the, of the training, uh, we don't have a fixed figure on this, but you know, when you have a low-tech curriculum and low-tech training, back to first principles, uh, you can't do everything. Uh, but we probably can do about 80%. It's hard to get a number on that, but probably up to about 80% of 
the usual cases can be taught and treated that way. So the clinical outcomes, uh, let's say, are better for 80% of the people that otherwise would have had nothing. And that's a good symbol of what uh, a program really can look like. And by the way, in this rather ramshackle building uh, where you had to walk to find a, a loo, a toilet, and so on, uh, and what electricity came by a long, long, long wire from someone's house through a window, uh, and we were able to plug in a projector doing that. But by the way, it poured with rain, torrential rain. <laughs> and you've got to imagine then the conditions with rain gushing down uh, and just nothing very comfortable. And yet I, I can't tell you how excited everybody was in that room. Uh, they were learning how to how to treat, and then when it came to the instructor day, they were learning how to instruct uh, using mobile phones. We videoed every practice session, and everybody, including myself, we learned how to communicate better. Uh, it was intense. It was full of fun, but it required trust and belief in each other, and that's a good example of the sort of culture you get in that situation. Now you got to repeat that story worldwide because all over the world every year we don't even know the exact number of courses run it's something like 200 or more in big years it's been up to 500 um, lower years are about 100 let's say about 200 places a year running the that kind of course very successfully and incidentally the standards uh, that people we keep getting we keep hearing this from other people who assess it, and there have been some, uh, some published uh, studies of the effectiveness of the courses, uh, but uh, opinions say that the standards the, the, of the curriculum, the clinical aspects, and the standards of education are sky high. We don't compromise on the standards just because it's in a low resource setting. And, and that's partly why people are so excited about it. They, after the course, they can communicate internationally with people in the same field. It doesn't matter if they're working in Harvard, London, or anywhere else. They can still communicate on the same, with the same knowledge. Uh, that's a principle which is, is fundamentally full of vision and hope. Thanks, Charles. Now, it may well be that somebody listening to this, uh, maybe a doctor in high-income countries, uh, thinks, well, what, what could I do to help? Uh, are you looking for lots of volunteer instructors or do you want people to send lots of money? Uh, if you want to be an instructor, how, how do you get, how, where, where are the instructor courses that you can go on if you, if you live in England? Well, if you live in England, uh, we have run some courses in the UK. Uh, we've run, run them in Oxford University and in the Liverpool School of uh, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And uh, we've run them at the request of the local groups of doctors. And they said uh, they wanted to be sure we, they, what they like about it is that it goes back to first principles. It's very replicable. And there are places, even in the UK, where it takes a while for the service to, to reach you. You might be on, on the ocean or up a mountain, for example, or in a, a mass crowd disaster. And if, our, if the people are trained to do what they can without equipment, without much equipment, uh, then it's useful. But actually that, I would call that just a bonus, those courses, because if somebody, as the people you've just described, if they come, and we do get many requests, um, the, 
our best answer is it needs to be in a low middle income country. This is a course which is designed for those countries, for those contexts, for low resource contexts. So the training takes place in situ right there. Uh, even in those countries, quite often there are uh, the capital cities may have quite good hospitals and, and facilities, quite impressive in fact. Uh, but you just, you just have to go a few kilometers outside the cities and it's much harder. So quite often we have started the courses on the fringe rather than the center so that we can demonstrate what it's like and make it something that people can easily copy and replicate as well. So if somebody wants to, to, to be part of this movement, we welcome it. Absolutely, we do. We would welcome uh, in many ways. First of all, any advice on how we can keep things fresh and interesting, either on educational principles or, or um, the, the curriculum principles. Um, if people want to really be involved in, around the world, then they need to find a location where uh, there are courses being taught, primary trauma care courses, and they are in, in many countries, as I mentioned, all the time. We can help provide those locations. If somebody gets in touch with us, and I think you'll give the contact details later, um, that if somebody does get in touch and ask, where's the nearest course to me? Where can I find them? We'll very gladly give you information that you can go and, and, and join in. But we would insist that you join in at day one uh, along with everybody else at point zero. And no matter how sophisticated you're on training, start again, do it there for two days uh, and absorb not just the curriculum, but absorb the culture of it, the ethos of it, which, which is a lot to do with uh, making ethical choices bravely but responsibly. When you've got those choices, what do you do? Uh, when the training is, uh, goes up to a certain way, but you can see something more sophisticated, but you might not want to go there because it's, it can't be replicated locally. We do train up to, for example, chest drains and cricothyroidotomies. But the, uh, there are more sophisticated uh, interventions which are into advanced trauma. We don't do that. Uh, but the, um, if people want to get involved, then they can go to those places, and uh, people often do across a border to neighboring countries. So that's a uh, main way for people to be involved in person. Um, and if you're a member of the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh, uh, then you might want to know that uh, they have accredited our course as part, as in association with their pre-hospital course, and they will have lots of contacts too that you could use to join in. Um, another way to help us is money. Now, we have a very small charity here in the UK. So it's only a small organization. It's a small organization with a vast global movement that it, it coordinates. Uh, so if you want to donate, it's extremely welcome, makes it possible for us to continue functioning. And I think you'll give details later. But basically, go to the website, which is primarytraumacare.org. Thank you very much, Charles, for your time. Uh, I'll give all those details uh, again in a moment, so if people want to uh, make a note, they can do so. But uh, we're very grateful to you for uh, sharing with us today uh, and last week as well. And uh, for now, I'll bid you goodbye. Thanks very much. Thank you and goodbye. Our thanks to Charles for being with us again today. 
I'll just give you the website details again for primary trauma care. It's primarytraumacare.org with no spaces. In these days of COVID-19, it's difficult and in many places impossible to stage a PTC course. But if you're already trained as a PTC instructor, there is an alternative. You could run a modular PTC course in your own hospital over a period of eight to 10 weeks of short weekly teaching sessions. The materials to do this are on the PTC website, but what I'd recommend is that you contact Dr. Jeanne Frossard who devised Modular PTC for advice. Her email address is rjfrossard, that's r-j-f-r-o-s-s-a-r-d, at googlemail.com. If any of you listening have any comments or suggestions, would like to get in touch, or would like to be interviewed on this podcast, do send me an email. My address is michael.dobson at nda.ox.ac.uk. But for now, from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.